Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to the first ever Commodity Watch Radio. I'm your host Dominic Frisbee and today we're going to be looking at silver. We've got interviews with David Morgan, one of the world's leading silver experts, who many of you will know from Financial Sense News Hour. We talk to expert trader Michael Hampton, aka Dr. Bub, about the commodities boom, why it's here to stay, and how you can make money out of it. And we've interviews with the presidents of two silver mining companies, Keith Neumeyer of First Majestic and Kathy Fong of Silvercorp. Now, firstly, the disclaimer. Nothing in this program constitutes advice from me or the makers of this program to buy or sell anything, particularly any specific stocks. The miners will be telling you their story very persuasively, but it's then up to you to do your own research. Check their website, research the management, look at their charts, have some knowledge of the raw materials they produce, do your own due diligence and make your own minds up. The programme lasts about an hour. You can listen to it on your computer or the best way is to upload it to your iPod. If you don't already have one, get one. Then listen to it when you're out and about, walking, running, in the car, the kitchen, wherever you might listen to the radio. And by the way, a great way to listen to your iPod in the car is to go onto eBay and get one of those FM transmitters. You can then listen to your iPod through your car stereo. Finally, this is the first ever programme and we've had a couple of teething problems with the sound. Not least the David Morgan interview where my master copy was stolen. All I had left was my backup copy where the sound isn't so good. But it isn't the quality of the sound that matters. It's the quality of the interviewee's utterances. Let's hear the first of them. Commodity Watch Radio. So I'm sat here the day after the Silver Summit. We're sat in the Hyatt Regency Hotel in the cigar room at the back. And I'm sat with David Morgan, one of the most famous silver bugs in the world. He has his website, silverinvestor.com, with the excellent newsletter, The Morgan Report. Many of you will know him from his contributions to Jim Paplava's Financial Sense. And he's just written a new book, Get the Skinny on Silver. David, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be in London. I'm certainly having a great time here. To get things started, David, tell us about your background and uh, how you first got involved with silver. Well, I in the preface of the book, I talk about um, being 11 years old when the uh, silver standard was uh, removed from the American currency. Uh, I was an 11-year-old kid. We went from uh, 90% silver coinage to cupro nickels. And just as a kid, I intuitively knew that the uh, 90% silver coin had to be intrinsically worth more than a copper-plated zinc coin, or slug as I call them. So that piqued my interest initially, but I didn't do much with it. I was only a child. And then as I progressed in age, uh, in eighth grade, we started studying civics and co- the Constitution. And, of course, the Constitution of the United States said that uh, money had to be coined and it had to be gold and silver. And so I, of course, raised my hand and said, this is very interesting to me because I know that the silver has been removed from the coinage, but yet the law of the land says it's supposed to be what gives. And I really never got a satisfactory answer from any of my, my teachers. So that sort of started this burning, yearning desire. Do you think they just didn't know? I, they did, I don't think they knew. And they got a, a, a almost satisfactory answer. You know, it's a legal tender law, and that's the way it is. Well, why? Why can a 
this law supersede the law of the land? That was my main question, and no one could give me a satisfactory answer to that. So I pressed on, and then uh, as I started work in the aircraft field, I, um, my first paycheck was actually more than the contract I signed. And that really upset me in a way because I thought maybe I was getting something I shouldn't be getting, and I asked one of the guys at work when I got my first paycheck, I signed a contract for this amount, and yet I'm getting an increase already, and no one's told me about a raise. So, oh, well, that's a cost of living adjustment. Well, okay. So that really started the fire burning. I started looking at inflation. I started delving into the study of money itself. And what I discovered actually frightened me a bit, knowing that uh, what happens at the, great of these, at the end of these great inflations. And I discovered that, uh, that no currency that didn't have sound backing went on forever. There was usually a financial debacle of some type or another. And so that was really the quest right there. Of course, that leads you into the gold and silver story. And I kept, you know, pressing on, and I'm still studying to this day. But that was actually the progression of how I came to be uh, such a silver and gold bug, if you will. Now, I'm going to read the opening line of the introduction of your book. And it reads like this. The main purpose in writing this book was to make the investment community at large aware of what I believe to be the single best investment in the world at the present time, silver. That is one hell of a statement. And it is. And, of course, it's always the proof is in the pudding. I think that, to elaborate on that, it's an educational process in my view. And what that means is that most people don't understand what money is. They don't understand the history of money, and they don't understand the problems associated with the fiat currency until after the fact. Nobody is ever interested in some kind of financial debacle or some kind of anomalous event until after the event. My forecast is that we won't have an anomalous event, but we'll get close enough that people will intuitively understand that gold and silver have been money for 5,000 years, and that there will be a move into the metals that is probably unprecedented in, in histories. And what that will mean is something as substantial as perhaps one-half of one percent of all of the money that's sloshing around the world moving into these markets. Because these markets are so small, it certainly is not going to be the masses that wake up to this story. That will not happen, in my view. What will happen is that a much greater percentage than it now realizes the gold and silver story will wake up to it. But on a total percentage basis, it's going to be a fractional small amount of money that it will take relative to the amount of money that's out there moving into this market. And that will take these markets substantially higher. What percentage of the active investment community would you say invest in silver? Or well, let's say silver and gold. Let's, uh, well, I'll, I'll do them both. Uh, first of all, I don't know the exact answer, but silver, I think, is smaller than I ever believed, and I knew that it was extremely small. I mean, I knew silver is a very tiny, tiny market, but being as close to it as I am now with my business and knowing all aspects of it, meaning from the futures trading all the way down to the you know, smallest coin dealer, you might have 50,000 people in the United States that actually buy physical silver. You might have 500,000. I doubt it's that many. I don't think so that's it's... that's 50,000 from a population of 250 million? Of 300 million, correct. Yeah, it is that small. I'm really... Now, I'm not talking about people that buy silver stocks. That's probably 10 times as many. But I'm talking about people that actually buy metal itself. Right. It is so teeny. And that is actually the true market. Certainly the futures market exists and the options, but you've got to remember, I mean, I did an interview with uh, CPM, 
and talked uh, about the bullion banking system and got it very clear. And Jeff was extremely straightforward. And he said both gold and silver, a lot of people don't believe the monetary story on silver, but the fact is both of them have derivatives of approximately 100 to 1. And he made a very succinct statement saying that the only commodities in the world that have that kind of ratio of derivative exposure are gold and silver. In other words, the only other ones are the financial instruments themselves. Therefore, the market itself is telling us that they treat both gold and silver as money. That's a fact. They don't have that kind of derivative exposure to corn or wheat or any other commodity, but gold and silver have a replication or derivative exposure exactly like the bond market or the currency markets. So they're actually traded the same. One of the things that appeals to me about silver is that it's a double play. It has this monetary aspect and it has a huge amount of industrial use as well. Tell us about its industrial use. Well, silver is the one metal that has more new applications on an annual basis than all other metals combined. It conducts heat better than any metal. It reflects light better than any metal. It also has probably the best acoustic qualities of any metal. And it is imperative to use in so many applications. Now, economically, if you're going to build uh, an iPod, you're going to build the best iPod you possibly can for the least cost and give it the highest markup. I mean, that's the free market. You would build it with circuitry that would use the best conductivity that you can and also produce a reliable product. And if you could use all copper, you would because it's cheaper than silver. Unfortunately, you have to have silver in there in some of the circuitry. The point is that it's the lowest priced uh, commodity for the best use. So the substitution uh, argument doesn't hold water for the electronics industry as a whole. Um, catalytic converters, uh, one of the people in the audience yesterday pointed out that they can use silver uh, as part of a catalytic conversion process, that lowers the cost. I mean, it's cheaper than palladium. Excuse me, it's cheaper than a palladium or platinum. So, the industrial applications keep increasing. Uh, about a decade ago, the percentage of usage industrially was about 35%. Today, it's 45% and growing. And in most of the industrial applications, the silver is used up from a practical point of view, meaning it does not get recycled. Now, some electronics does but that is a small percentage relative to how much is used. I think that point needs emphasizing. Silver is getting consumed. Absolutely. And that, uh, you know, I've had arguments about that. I mean, a physicist would say, well, all the silver still exists. And of course, that's true. But it exists in applications that are uneconomic to retrieve. You wouldn't melt down a $200 iPod to retrieve five cents worth of silver. It's ridiculous. Although it's so widely used, it's used in such small quantities that if silver costs $15 an ounce or $30 or $50 an ounce, it really doesn't make that much difference to the overall budget of the iPod. Absolutely true. That is uh, the most, that's a very succinct way to say it, and that's the whole point of the industrial usage. It really doesn't matter. The industrial users might not like it, but when you're building a you know, $1,500 refrigerator that's got silver plates on the inside for antimicrobial properties, and silver goes to $100 an ounce, they really are not going to stop manufacturing a refrigerator because the amount of cost to them is not that great relative to the end cost of the product. I've been reading a lot about silver being used in new healthcare products. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, silver has uh, antibacterial properties and it's been used for that for ages. Uh, colloidal silver is actually used in the 1900s rather extensively. It's coming back a bit into vogue. Um, 
but with all kinds of uh, oh, health uh, care practitioner types or individuals that uh, seek their own knowledge about health issues but primarily from the more mainstream medical applications. Uh, it's used as water purification, and it's also used as a disinfectant. For example, the Silver Institute put out a newsletter about a year ago and talked about what's happening in the meatpacking plants. And in that case, they're using a lot more uh, colloidal-type silver to keep the surfaces clean and also on the saw blades when they uh, you know, make the steaks and all the different cuts of meat because of the properties. You have it in the medical field for uh, catheters. You have it for uh, anything where it's invasive to the body. If it's silver tipped, you don't have the spread of bacteria at all. So more and more application in the medical field. In fact, it's one of the fastest growing segments of the subset of the industrial applications. Although the medical application subset of industrial usage is rather small, it is growing rapidly. I think most of our listeners will be aware of the, uh, shall we say, the fallibility of fiat currency, of currency that's not backed by anything, and of the fact that gold and silver have always been a form of money. So I don't want to dwell on that too long, but is there a fiat currency in history, a currency that wasn't backed by anything, that has survived? Well, it depends on your parameters. I mean, you could look at... um well, you can go back to Rome, really. It started with uh, honest currency of full weights and measures, and then at the end, uh, the denarius was like a silver coin that was really copper and silver-plated, and after a small amount of circulation, the silver would actually wear off the coin. But does that coin still exist? Yes, it does. In fact, I've got two examples I do at some of my shows. I showed the earlier coin that was silver, and the later coin is basically copper. Um, no currency that I know of, I mean, I'm not probably the best student in the world on this subject, but none that I'm aware of have actually lasted forever. I mean, the Magambo guru, which you may be familiar with yeah. here, uh, is very much more humorous than I, and he has a way of stating it that really gets people you know, to understand the subject and, and laugh at the same time. And, and he talked about doing a study on all, all fiat currencies of the world. He said they were doing a study in alphabetical order. Oh, and yeah. what they discovered was that 877 fiat currencies had failed and they were only on the letter B. Oh, my goodness. That is a wonderful statistic. <laughs> Do you think there is a serious danger, a real danger of, of currency collapse? I mean, people have been predicting the demise of the dollar for a long time and it hasn't happened. And... Do you think it's a real possibility? I think it is a possibility. I think that you can't live a lie forever. And that situation is basically what you said. Let me reiterate a little bit so I can clear my thinking. But the argument, much smarter men than I, have predicted the demise of the dollar or the pound many years ago. In fact, Vern Myers, one of my mentors, lived in Spokane. And uh, he's written several books, and I mean, they're really passe. I mean, this type of argument had gone on in the 1970s, okay? And here we are, 2006, and basically the world has become much, much wealthier. And the standard of living in the West has gone up substantially, or measurably, we'll say. So the question becomes, you know, is it true or is it not? And I still believe it's true, and it's for this reason. Having an engineering background and also having studied logic, There is no system that grows forever. As the adage goes, no tree grows to the moon. Everything has a limit. And my belief in studies shows that even the amount of credit expansion has a limit. I really believe that to be true. I look at the economic system as actually a function of nature. It's almost like looking at the way a tree grows. 
So it's my study that shows that we're near the end of the availability of the banks to expand the credit system. And what that means is the next problem that occurs, the banks will do what they've always done, which means to expand credit or make the liquidity come in, like, for example, what happened to long-term capital management. However, my conjecture is that there may be a point where it doesn't work anymore. For example, people talk about monetizing the debt. And what that really means is that China is sick of all the bonds that they have, the United States bonds, treasury bills, etc. And so they trade them in, and they're monetized. And what that means is they're taking a piece of paper that says bond, and they're trading it for a bunch of pieces of papers with George Washington's picture on it. They're basically trading paper for paper. One paper is a long-term commitment that they're supposed to hold for 30 years, and they're trading it in for something that's liquid cash that they can spend tomorrow. But it's still unbacked. And I believe that there's a limit to that, what that becomes because at some point, even though you can monetize it and create the liquidity and spend it instantly, at what point does that not buy you what you really want? And we've already seen that surface in the markets. China was unable to pull off the Unical deal. Now, that to China's point of view might be that this currency is no more than a ticket you'd pick up at the county fair, that once the fair leaves town, it's no longer viable for buying anything. You're stuck with this piece of paper that doesn't do you any good. That may be a bit of a strong analogy, but it's very accurate. I mean, if the dollar can't buy them what they want any time they want, then they're starting to say, well, what you know, will we do with these dollars? And they're moving into the commodity sector, and I believe they're taking actual physical possession of many of the commodities, and that's why you see them starting to rise, and, and this trend continues. Put yourself in the shoes of one of the leading lights in the Chinese central bank. What would you do? I would do exactly that, but I do it slowly. I think everybody has the you know their best interest at heart, which means they want the system to continue the way it is. No one wants to rock the apple cart. So what you do to protect yourself is you move in slowly into things that are wealth, real wealth. You do it slowly over time. But if it happens slowly, we're going to see it slowly, slowly, and then everyone's noticed that everyone else is doing it. It's going to get faster and faster, and then there's going to be a rush for the door. That's exactly my point. I think that uh, even in the best interest or as stealthily as it could be done, that uh, someone else will catch on and say, aha, and markets move at the margin. So it may take just a little bit more from, uh, let's say, another bank selling as long as China is as well. Let's say Japan catches on to what China is doing and says, you know what, I'm not going to be the last one out of here. I want out of the dollar as well. And once that additional emphasis of selling starts, it may, I'm not going to say it's going to turn into a panic. I really doubt that. But it may turn into enough of a move that the dollar just starts to get down, 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 and it's really hard to reverse that. Markets always move down faster than they move up. If I was a Saudi and I'd lived in a country that was essentially pretty poor, and then I'd seen the cost of oil rise dramatically during the 1970s, and with it, huge amounts of wealth come into my country, yet that wealth came in the form of dollars, and we were selling our oil, the oil runs out, all we've got left to show for it is these dollars, which have since collapsed. There will be some quite angry Saudis out there. Indeed, and uh, if you look back at the uh, 70s when we had the first oil embargo and you study what they did, they basically said, you know, we're not really happy with these dollars, so the price of oil rose. And then they were converting those dollars into gold and silver. In fact, that was one of the Hunt's uh, situations near the end of the silver situation in the 70s and, late, and early 1980 
was that they got some of the Saudi princes to you know learn the silver story, and they were actually buying into the physical silver market, which took it much higher. So actually, under the oil scenario, silver did better than gold, and I believe the world's facing that again and uh, will continue for quite some time. And from their point of view, you know, and uh, everyone usually looks after their own self-interest, they would want to convert it to something that has lasting wealth. And, of course, that's the metals more than anything else that I know of. So I think you will see that uh, continue to take place. But, again, they'll probably try to do it in a way that is um, not going to upset the markets. And that's the problem with the market of gold and silver is they're small markets. So a lot of money moving in quickly moves these markets very, very fast. Apart from water, oil is probably the single most important commodity in the world. If you want to buy oil, you've got to buy dollars first. While oil remains traded in dollars, surely it's safe. And while the oil supplies are controlled by America and controlled by the American military, surely thus the military is protecting the dollar and the dollar's safe. Yeah, I wouldn't argue with that point. Uh, but I think that's probably what scares the central banks or the Federal Reserve more than anything else is that if um, oil was priced in euros, for example, as uh, Saddam Hussein had proposed, uh, it very much upsets them. And Do you think that's one of the reasons they went there? Yes. Yeah, I think, you know, again, what's the anomalous event? I mean, it, the, I think just the threat of doing that was enough to push them over the edge. But Iran and Russia have both made noises in that direction as well. Everyone wants to figure out how to exit the dollar carefully, strategically, without rocking the boat too much. And so the way it usually plays out in history is that there's a currency battle that takes place. Because even though in the end of all ends, all currencies go the way of, of the Mogambo study, before that takes place, the banker's last vestige, the last game, if you will, is that one currency supersedes another one. What happened to the pound sterling? The U.S. dollar took over. When that took place, the pound sterling wasn't backed by silver anymore, but the U.S. dollar under Bretton Woods was backed by gold, right? So the dollar was as good as gold, and the old expression, sound as a dollar held, and that was very good for quite some time until France caught America as printing too many dollars. Now, these things aren't always, uh, you know, collapses. I mean, a, a financial collapse is an extremely rare event. And it depends how you define it. I think the only you know, definition, you look at Rome failing after 200 years, if you look at what happened in the 30s in America. But uh, that type of situation, will that happen again? I don't know. Uh, but the point is that the, the preeminence position of the pound, once it was cut from a value-backed situation to a non-value-backed situation lost its prestige. And the next currency that took over was one that had the prestige of a of financial backing by gold. And now we're in a situation where there is no currency backed by gold. There may be again someday. Perhaps the Renimbi will be backed by gold. I don't know. Or the dinar, right. What do you think the impact of all this is going to be on us ordinary Joes living in the UK? It's going to continue to have more and more wild and volatile markets and people will not really understand unless they're studied what is taking place but they will sense it intuitively they'll notice what happens at the market when they go to buy groceries what their rents are what petrol costs and on and on so they'll intuitively are we see rising interest rates the banks have a problem right now with interest rates because the credit expansion is so great and as i said earlier i think we're pretty much at a limit 
that they can't raise interest rates to protect their currency very much or they'll actually collapse the system, and I think they know that. If what took place under Volcker in 1980 took place again today, the system would collapse. You could not go from a 5.5% interest rate to 15 overnight. It would collapse the housing market, no doubt in my mind. Well, are you bearish on housing? I'm bearish on housing in the U.S. in uh, the larger cities. There's always areas in any market you can find uh, an exception to the rule. But generally speaking, yes, I'm pretty bearish on housing. But the boom we've seen in the U.K. is two or three times the magnitude of the boom you've had in the U.S. Exactly. So I think that that answers you. No, to me it's not. But I'm a contrarian, and, you know, I've been wrong before, but I just... There's a, again, there's a limit to everything. Let me, let me ask you a, a bit of a rhetorical question, and maybe you can answer your own. How many of your friends can now afford the house that they're living in? Without a mortgage. Right. Uh, only the ones who were born into huge wealth or who work in the city. Okay, Not so it's a very... Ordinary jobs. So there you go. Um, but let's say you've got a, a million-pound house and you've got a 50% mortgage. You've got, you've got half a million mortgage, half a million pounds in, in capital and equity in the house. That half a million pound mortgage, surely it's just going to get inflated away. Well, I'm glad that you're sure. I'm not so sure. If you, if you fix the rate. It could. I won't argue that it could. Uh, but normally markets favor the minority, not the majority. So when everybody's on one side of the boat, it tips over. Let me ask you about uh, if a stock's going to crash if we see this collapse of the dollar, or are stocks going to carry on rising in the Paplava scenario? It depends. And the answer is this. If the credit expansion continues, the stock market will inflate because some of that fiat money will go into the stock market. That's what happens in a hyperinflation. The stocks will go up and they'll go up substantially. Uh, Harry Dent is probably one that uh, expresses that view. So certainly I don't rule it out. However, if the credit uh, expansion discontinues or starts to collapse, i.e. through the housing market, let's say, and that carries through to other markets, then you would see a decline. So I'm open. I'm watching the market carefully here. Right now it's showing a topping action. It's not really showing any strength breaking through the new highs. It's only in nominal terms that it's at a new high, but in real terms it's not. If it gets to new highs in real terms, then I will get much more interested to see that the banks are still able to expand the credit supply. And if that's true, then I'll certainly concede the market knows more than I. I believe that it's probably more likely that it will stop and that we're nearing a top in the market. But we'll all wait and see. In the scenario that we have some sort of currency collapse and there's a rush to gold and silver, and we also have a decline in the stock markets, what do you see happening to the companies that produce gold and silver, the miners? They have leverage to the price of gold and silver, and so they'll go up substantially. Most people have stock accounts but are unable, I shouldn't say unable, that they're reluctant to buy the physical metal. They don't know how, although it's probably one of the easiest purchases to make. They're unfamiliar with it, and because they are, they're scared to do it. But they're not scared of stocks because they've been in the stock market. Most people in America have a stock account of some type or another. So it's very, very liquid, and it's very easy to get into this market. So you'll see a huge overrush. You'll see a huge overvaluation. In fact, I predict that at the top of the market, you'll see some of these penny stocks go from like 25 cents to 250 in a matter of a week. But I don't see that happening to probably 2010, 2011 time frame. What will the signs be to sell your silver? Great question, and one of the hardest ones for me to answer. It depends how the scenario plays out. I mean, if. Um, and what do you sell it for? Right, exactly. You 
right now, with not knowing the future, if we have a hyperinflationary blow-off or if we have a debt-liquidating situation, I don't know what to do. But if we have more of a hyperinflationary scenario, what I am proposing right now is to sell all of your mining companies because at that point, you're trading paper for paper, essentially. Now, what do you do with that paper? I don't really know, but the markets do. There might be great buys in the real estate market. There might be great buys in uh, dividend-paying industrial companies. I don't know. There's certainly always an opportunity out there. And secondly, if it goes... uh, so that would be my first choice would be to sell the stocks but hold the metal itself because you could, and this is very theoretical, I want to point that out, but you could get in a situation where you've got massive amounts of dollars or pounds and in the time you liquidate them, just a few moments later, they really don't buy you anything. Now that's, that's an extreme case, but if that were the case and you held your metals, of course your metals would still buy you a great deal. I think it's not going to get that bad. And I really don't like to use the word currency collapse, although I often say it. I talk about it as a perceived currency collapse. Mm-hmm. Well, the markets get overvalued. So gold and silver could get overvalued in paper terms. It really could happen. And that's where you want to take that opportunity to trade it for something that no one's paying attention to. Again, it might be real estate or raw land or, or uh, agriculture or uh, another commodity. I don't really know at this point, but well, there will well, be an opportunity. Value. Yeah, you look for value situation, exactly. I mean, I've, I've been to my local coin dealer to buy some uh, gold sovereigns. It's hard to buy silver in the UK because of the VAT. But I've been to buy some gold sovereigns. And it, it, it's like walking into the world of Harry Potter or something like that. There's a, a man slides this, this uh, thing back on the door to see who's at the door. And then he lets you in. And there's a kind of tiny man with a hunchback and a beard looking through this, this uh, I don't know what you call them, this kind of magnifying glass on one eye. I mean, it, it's, you, you, it's a different world. It's not like going into Next or Tesco's or something. Oh, you're just making me laugh, and it's so accurate. Um, and that's, it's not quite like that in the United States, but it's similar. Uh, it's just a market, and that, that shows you how tiny the market is. And I mean, how I, I walked into my the coin dealer in Hatton Garden, I won't say the name, and, and the guy was just so rude. And, and I, I was I'm, I'm really sorry to be a customer and get in the way of the smooth running of your shop. And he was just going, it's not that, I just don't like the public. I don't like the public. And uh, they waste my time and they don't know what they're talking about. I just like dealing to the business. And uh, that was his attitude. So uh, they're not exactly going out there and trying to persuade you to buy their gold and silver coins. Um, you talked about your phases. In, in the talk, you talked about the three phases of the bull market. You reckon we're at the beginning of the second phase? That's correct. This is the phase where more of the public wakes up to whatever the reason that they want to invest in these markets, the gold and silver markets. Primarily, it's for uh, capital preservation. Uh, Additionally, it's for capital gains. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to buy silver uh, with a perfect monetary system. I mean, disregard everything we said about, uh, you know, problems with the fiat currency. Let's say that you believe that there isn't any problems, and there are silver analysts that believe that. Uh, It's still a wonderful investment because you have a... The opportunity to see a very this double play thing. Yeah, right. You have an opportunity where you have a very sound monetary uh, 
economic viability worldwide. You have China expanding, India expanding. They all want these goodies, these DVD players, these plasma screen TVs, and on and on. I mean, a plasma screen TV takes a great deal of silver, so everyone's got one in their, you know, the bedroom, their bathroom, and their hallway. I mean, that would use a great deal of silver. So you could be the most extreme optimist about the monetary system, and that's extremely good for silver. On the other hand, you could be more caught, you know, cautious as I am, and it's still very good for silver. So it really doesn't matter, you know, which economic point of view you take from the silver market, it's still going to do it well. How much of your portfolio is weighted to silver? What percentage? Uh, physical is about 50% of my, so I have, you know, like half in the mining equities and half in the physical metal. Right. Of the physical metal, it's, it varies because I do play the gold-silver ratio from time to time. Right. So at times I have perhaps more gold than I'd like. Mm-hmm. And I do that to trade it back into silver. So right now, at the current time, it's probably 80-20, probably 20% gold, 80% silver. What do you look for in a miner? I do two classifications of miners. I look at producers, and they're, e- they're much easier to analyze. I mean, they've got a balance sheet and an income statement. So I, don't, you know, I can analyze a miner like I would uh, a widget company, which is, of course, the the term used in finance when you go through you know, school. The product is gold, the product is silver, or it's you know, base metals and silver credits or whatever. It's pretty easy to analyze. You know, how much did you produce? What were the costs? And what's the bottom line? And that's good. And I think those are solid companies, and I still adhere to that's the place that's the most liquid, and it's the best for the fund managers or money managers or institutions that follow my work. These guys know that they can't move into these penny stocks without getting hurt. So the institutions uh, or very large investors that follow my work or subscribe use the asset allocation model that I give them on a monthly basis. It shows you the most liquid and the highest ranked stocks in both gold and silver, sometimes uh, other metals as well. And then we move to the subset, which is very difficult to analyze, and that's the junior mining or exploring sector. And there's a couple subsets there, and I don't want to belabor the point, but if you have a small producer with exploration potential, that's basically my best model for speculation because you have a bit of a bottom line. They might not be making positive cash flow, but they're on their way, especially if prices in the metals increase. And you also have a double bagger from the standpoint that they may be able to explore and find something more to add to their asset base. So I like that one. It's a fairly safe way to play that very difficult game. And lastly, you have a discovery company, and those are very, very difficult. And normally there, you just look at a couple of things. You've got to look at the people. Do they have a track record? Are they sincere and are they honest? And if that's established, then you've got to go find out, do they have enough money to drill the heck out of this thing and find out if there's anything there or not? If they have enough money to back it up, it's a lottery ticket. And certainly we do that from time to time. But it's not the way uh, to get wealthy because... Uh, unless you hit. I mean, if you hit the lottery ticket, it's a way to wealth, but certainly there isn't a financial planner in the UK that I know of that says, here, you're paying me this fee to help you with your financial plan. Here's what you do. Take all of your money and go play the lottery. No one is advising that, and that's basically what you're doing. You have a better chance playing the junior minors than the lottery, but not much of one. You've got about a 1 in 3,000 chance in those. So if you're selective and you find the right people uh, and follow the stories, it's a lot safer, and most people don't want to do this because they'd love to buy a 20-cent stock and watch it go to $20. That's a very rare event. It's a much better if there is a stock out there that goes from 20 cents to $20. Let's take Aurelian, for example. It went from basically 50 cents to $40. 
you're much better buying that stock at two dollars, which is a ten bagger or yeah. five, you know, and watch it go to twenty and forty than you were buying it at forty nine cents when they hadn't, you know, discovered the project. So, but people are reluctant to do that, yeah. even though that's buying the growth curve. It's like buying Microsoft yeah. years into the business where all of the go nowhere stock situation has taken is behind you and now it's really starting the growth curve that's where you want to invest where the growth curve starts up i heard a great quote from zapata george where he described he got his fingers burnt with a mining stock and uh, he says that his house overlooks the gulf of mexico and from now on he's not investing in any companies that do business south of his porch <laughs> Do you have a kind of? Do you have countries that you prefer against countries that you wouldn't? Mines in countries you wouldn't touch. From the beginning, we've not done any South Africans uh, people, and that was absolutely the place to be in the 70s. I mean, the best uh, ways to build great wealth in the last gold bull market was through the South African mining companies. This time around, I just felt the political risk was too great. And so far, I've been proven right now that a lot of these companies have gone up. I certainly wouldn't argue they haven't. And I have some good friends. In fact, uh, one broker I know quite well, his brother lives in South Africa. I have a few friends that actually are there. And they argue against me, but that's, that's my belief, again. South America? Uh, hand chosen, um, reluctant to be in Venezuela, Bolivia. We still have a couple speculations, but I'm very uh, straight up about that. It's like if you can afford the risk, uh, this is a speculation, so we're only betting a little to win a lot anyway. I still like this company, that type of thing. So I look at them on an individual basis. I'm not real fond. Colombia, I think, is overlooked. Uh, I think that's pretty good. Peru is starting to make me a bit nervous here. Argentina, I think, is fine. So case-by-case basis. David Morgan, why don't you plug your website and your newsletter? And okay, well, thank you so much. Uh, it's silver-investor.com. Uh, the contact points are on the website. I encourage everybody to get on our free email list, and that's in the upper right-hand corner of the website. Uh, we're not asking for a lot. All we need is your first or your last name or your nickname and your email. And what you'll get is the 10 Rules of Silver Investing which is a book that was published here in the United Kingdom many years ago. And a very uh, eloquent chap asked me to write the 10 rules of silver investing for this book on investing rules. And there's such notables as uh, Sir John Templeton in that book. And this is something that will do well for the most seasoned investor to the novice because I really spell out the 10 rules in there that will actually, if you apply them, help you not only in your investing career but in life in general. For example, I forget what rule number it is, but I think it's around 7 or 8, and I talk about speculation. It's like cough syrup. A little bit can make you well, but too much can make you sick. <laughs> A lot of people tend to over-speculate. And so it's something to get on. Um, it's free. It's fun. And... Uh, that would be an encouragement. The book, of course, I'm not getting rich on this book. I think I make 80 cents per book off of Amazon. It was a vanity publication. It cost me several thousand dollars to get this thing rolling, but I'm happy I did it. And it's for an education. It's certainly not the biggest treatise on silver. It's basically a primer in the silver market, but most people are so undereducated on the metals. That's a good beginner book, and I'll probably do a follow-up later with more you know, depth and meat to it. Once again, David Morgan, it's been a great interview. It's been a bit of a pleasure meeting you and hearing your presentation, and I advise uh, uh, everyone to get down to your website as fast as they possibly can. Well, thank you for having me. Commodity Watch Radio. I'm Sam.
sat here at the Miners and Money Conference at the Hilton Hotel in London with Keith Normeyer, who is the head of First Majestic, the silver miner in Mexico. Keith, welcome to the show, and um, tell us about First Majestic. Well, First Majestic has been very fortunate over the last couple of years to acquire some very exciting assets. We now have three producing silver mines in Mexico, and this year we'll produce 2.5 million ounces, and next year we'll produce 5 million ounces of silver. 2.5 million ounces producing, when you say this year, 2007, you mean? No, I mean this year, 2006, and next year, 5,000 for 2007. How much does it cost you to get the silver out of the ground? Right now we're in the, around the $6 range. Uh, six and a quarter uh, is coming down quite quickly as we're ramping up production at these particular mines. We we don't project silver prices uh, to go much, or our silver costs, pardon me, to go much lower than five dollars over the next couple of years. What about the silver price? Where do you see that going? Well, I, I project the silver price to go much higher. I think we'll see twenty dollars silver within the next couple of years. Fantastic. And at, at five dollar costs, you've got huge margins there. So. Even at $12 silver, we're making a good business out of selling silver. And um, tell us about your background. How did you become involved with silver? Well, I've been involved in the the investment community for over 20 years. I started in the brokerage business, and uh, I then started working for a number of publicly traded companies. And the most famous company that I formed is a company called First Quantum Minerals. Uh, I put the business plan together with a group of other people uh, in the mid-'90s, and uh, raised all the early money for that company and, uh, as I said, was the founding president. Uh, and uh, since then, uh, I've been looking for another opportunity and I really like silver. Uh, there's very few companies involved in the silver business, quite different than gold where you've got several hundred companies to choose from. Investors don't need to look very far to find First Majestic, well, one of the few uh, pure silver producers in the world. And uh, when did you come on board with First Majestic? How long ago? Well, I put the company together myself. Uh, I started structuring the the vehicle or the public company in the early uh, 2000, 2002, and then uh, began looking for projects. And I wanted to focus on silver. Mexico made most sense to me. It's very close to Canada geographically, so it's easy to get to. But Mexico also offers a huge opportunity for mining companies. Uh, And for silver, it just made so much sense to, to focus on Mexico. How did you find the deposits? Well, it's just contacts. Uh, I was very fortunate to uh, find a chief operating officer who formed uh, uh, or, or worked with Pan American Silver for the last six years or, or prior to coming on First Majestic for a period of six years. He was the president of the Mexican operations, and he built all the Pan American Silver Mines in Mexico. So he came over and joined forces with me at the end of 2003, and then with his contacts over the, over the last couple of years, we've been able to acquire a very good portfolio of assets. Tell us about some of the other staff that you've got on board, so the rest of the management team. We have 850 employees right now. We've grown very fast. Uh, we've had people from Gold Corp, uh, Luzman, Hecla, uh, Pinoles, uh, Grupo Mexico come over to our management team. I think uh, the management of First Majestic is, is most definitely the best management team there is in Mexico for a mining company, even compared to some of the much larger companies, our management team definitely stands out. Have you got any exploration projects on the go as well? I'm not a huge fan of exploration. It, it, to me, it's it's like going to Vegas, and uh, you, you, your risk-reward ratio on exploration projects is very, very high. Uh, <laughs> as a mining company, you have to spend some money on exploration, but it, it, it's, it's not a focus. We do have some 
some exploration projects. We do have a couple of rigs drilling right now on some high-risk areas, uh, but we've put very little money into exploration. Most of our drilling money, we have 11 rigs operating in the company right now, and nine of those rigs are uh, working on resource development, and only two of those rigs are working on exploration. Not only does the story sound excellent, but the chart looks, well, to me it spells an opportunity. Up until May of this year, it pretty much uh, mirrored the silver chart, and it peaked in May. And uh, indeed, it then bottomed in June and continued to mirror the silver chart until September, when there was a huge dip and the price dropped to a low of just below $3. What happened there? Well, the, the stock has been trading in the in the mid four dollar range most of the year. It, it had a peak of over seven dollars in April when silver went over fifteen dollars. Very exciting time. The company's market cap exceeded three hundred fifty million dollars at that time. Uh, in September, unfortunately, we had an incident that uh, a hedge fund in New York sold uh, a couple of million shares at the market. Uh, for their own personal reasons, it wasn't uh, fundamental. I don't believe I, uh, that caused a, a, a stampede uh, of selling. Unfortunately, the damage. You think the hedge fund panicked a bit, don't you? Well, I think the, there was some redemptions going on, or there was some. Uh, uh, it was unrelated to First Majestic. I think there was things that were going on inside the hedge fund that we're not aware of because it doesn't make any sense to me why someone would sell so aggressively when they could have sold that position over a period of a couple of weeks and, and got much better prices for it. Uh, the, 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 the damage they did in the one or two days took uh, really the whole month of September and October to clean itself out. Now the stock is in the mid $3 range. Uh, which still at a market cap now of $150 million with three producing mines it offers an enormous opportunity for new investors, unfortunately for the company. Uh, but uh, for new investors, as I said, it, it, it does create an opportunity. It's trading at about uh, half the price of the peak, so it is an opportunity. Most of the other silver miners have retraced. How many shares are there out there? We have about 45 million shares outstanding. And uh, options and warrants? There's another about $9 million in, in options and warrants. Now, tell us about the three mines and their mine life. Well, the uh, uh, 43101 compliant resource at the San Martin is about 48 million ounces. We feel that that can be tripled over the next two years. The 43101 at the um, uh, La Pria is 11 million ounces. We're coming out with a new 43101 resource estimate at the end of December. That'll be closer to about 20 million, 18 to 20 million ounces. Mm -hmm. Our target there is to reach 100 million ounces in 43101 compliant silver by the end of 2007. We now have three, six rigs operating at that mine, so you know the, the resource development is, is increasing much more rapidly than what we experienced with only two or three rigs earlier this year. At the Lincoln Tata, that's a, a historic resource. It's not 43101 compliant yet. Over the next six months, we will be uh, developing that resource to meet the Canadian requirements, uh, regulatory requirements. But on a mine life, these mines will be in production for at least you know, the next 10 years plus. What about the uh, power and the water and the, the local infrastructure there? It's different depending on which mine. Uh, the La Pria is a 45-minute ride or drive outside the city of Durango, which populates 600,000 people. Very easy to get to, all the infrastructure you can imagine. 
uh, the San Martin. Uh, it's right beside a town of 4,000 people. It's got power, water. There's a big river going right through the town. There's no problem at all. It is somewhat remote, but there's a town of 4,000 people. So, you know, it, 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 all the labor force, everything that we need is there. If we do need heavy equipment and so on and so forth, it has to come in from Guadalajara. But there is a paved road that comes in from a major city. Guadalajara has got a population of 8, 8 million people. The uh, Lincoln Pad is a little bit of a different situation. It's, it, it is somewhat remote in the north. Uh, uh, the water source is uh, some distance away as well. We pipe the water in uh, over 20 kilometers to that mine, and the power uh, uh, is generated through diesel power. Uh, however, the grades there are our highest grade uh, mine. The, the head grade in, in the month of November was 700 grams silver. So even with the higher cost of getting water and power into that particular mine, the grades there pay for it quite easily. Tell us about your future aims for the company and how you're going to achieve them. Well, with my background being the originating founder of First Quantum and with uh, Ramon Davila's background as being the chief operating officer of First Majestic and being the ex-president of, of Pan American's operations in Mexico, we have very, very high lofty goals for ourselves. Uh, we're looking to achieve over 10 million ounces of silver by the end of 2008. Now, we're not projecting that in any of our financials that we put out in the public because uh, that would be you know, a larger number than I think what the financial community would, would, uh, um, would like to see. We're projecting right now 7 million ounces of production in 2008. But to get to the 10 million number, that's a personal goal that we have among management, and we have to remain aggressive. Now we, uh, we've got three producing mines right now, and we're very happy with those assets. We're going to continue to invest in those assets to increase the production at those three mines. But we have to be aggressive on the acquisition front. I still think there's a lot of opportunity in Mexico. We're looking at some pretty interesting acquisitions right now, which we think will take us up to over that 10 million ounce number uh, by the end of 2008, and that's where we're trying to go. With silver prices just below 13 bucks at the moment, how much do you think you're worth? Well, you, our market cap is $150 million right now. I think we should have at least a three to $400 million market cap. So if you go to our website at, at firstmajestic.com, you'll see uh, how our resources are broken down in categories. Right now we have about 60 million ounces of 43101 compliant silver resources. Uh, the market pays, if you look at all the, all the silver producers out there, the market pays about $2 U.S. an ounce for 43101 compliant silver ounces. So at 60 million ounces, that's 120 million U.S. dollars, which would be about 150 million Canadian dollars, is right where our market cap is today. And that's for not, that doesn't take into account our production or, or any of our production or, or our revenues or our profits. Yeah, all it is is just the silver. While we're operating profits next year, will be about 30 cents in cash. So, you know, on, on let's say 50 million, we'll do about 15 million in, in, in operating profits next year. That's a pretty good number. Now, our target is to reach 200 million ounces of 43101 compliant silver by the end of 2007. We're at 60 today, so 200 is not that far off. At 200 million ounces, that's 400 million Canadian dollars, or U.S. dollars, about 450 million Canadian dollars. Right there, you've got three times share price, what we're trading at today. That doesn't take into consideration any of our production. Or the rise in silver price. 
True enough. That we all know is coming. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Very much so. So, if any of you are interested in First Majestic, I suppose your first port of call for your research is firstmajestic.com. The symbol is FR, and they trade in Canada on the Venture Exchange. And you also trade in Frankfurt, is that right? We trade in Frankfurt, Stuttgart, Munich, and Berlin, and in the United States. Now, when you go around these conferences and you meet all the miners, uh, a lot of them have got a little kind of gag or a gimmick to uh, entice you to their stand. But with Keith, he gives you a one-ounce silver coin, which is about as good as it gets. Keith, you've got a lot of style. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me, and and not everyone gets that silver coin. (laughs) Only the ones offering (laughs) interviews. That's right. Commodity Watch Radio. Well, my next guest on the show is Kathy Fong, who is the president of Silvercorp Metals, a public company engaged in the acquisition, exploration and mining of mineral properties in China. They trade on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol SVM. Kathy, welcome to the show. Dominic, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So tell us about Silvercorp. Silvercorp is a company that's three years in the making. In the three years, we were an exploration company for the first two years. This year is our first year of operating as a mining operator. Now, three years ago, we had less than five people working for Silvercorp. Spring of this year, March 2006, we had 450 people working for Silvercorp. Today, we have more than 800 people working for Silvercorp. In the first two years, as an exploration company, Silvercorp generated money. In the first year, it was $2.8 million as an explorer, and the second year was $5 million. We're now into our third year as a producer that's ramping up to full production. In the first quarter of this year, we made $0.05 cents in net earning per share. In the second quarter, we made $0.11 cents per earning per share. So it's gone fabulous for Silvercorp, a very young company in the making. What do you mine? We mine silver, lead, and zinc, but we don't just mine silver, lead, and zinc. We mine concentrate. Our silver grade, in terms of a National Instrument 43 101 cumulative average, is more than 45 ounces per ton is pure silver. In conjunction with the silver, there is more than 25% that is lead. In conjunction with the lead, there is more than 8% that is zinc. As a cumulative average, today we have 198 million ounces of equivalent silver with a mine life in the measuring indicator six years and six years that are inferred life. Therefore, today we have 12 years of mine life. The resource is based on less than 10% of our overall property. How much does it cost you to get an ounce of silver to market? Silver company reports in terms of cash production per ounce of silver taking into byproduct credit. For us, it's minus $6.27. Now, I always found that to be a little bit awkward to understand. Therefore, I always say to people, in the second quarter, 
we brought in $9.63 in revenue for each ounce of silver, and it cost Silvercorp $2.19 to produce that one ounce of silver. It cost us $0.12 cents to produce a pound of lead, but our revenue for that was more than $0.50 cents a pound. For zinc, it was $1.11 was our revenue for the zinc, and it cost Silvercorp $0.25 cents to produce that pound of zinc. Now, your, the performance of your stock has been quite stellar. Tell us about that. Everything is about delivery. We're looking at growing a resource from zero in 2004, and we shown in 2005 May 43.3 million ounces of silver, 99.1 million ounces of equivalent silver. We doubled that in 2006. We were able to show 198 million ounces of equivalent silver. In March of 2006, we received our mining permit, and today we are ramping up to full production. So for Silvercorp, it's very simple. We did not take 15 or 20 years to bring a grassroots project into production. It took Silvercorp 20 months to bring Ying into production. Beyond that, in the first quarter, of our production ramp-up, we show net earning of five cents, representing more than 50% in profit margin. In the second quarter, we show sustainability and also scale up of the same margin. On a corporate level, the margin is more than 50% is the earnings margin. At the mine site, consistently, we've been performing with a margin that's more than 77%. As an example, in the second quarter, we were at the mine site, we had $10.7 million, which is the revenue. However, $8.2 million of that was the earning, therefore resulting in a 77.3% margin at the mine site. Your year high was about $20, is that right? This was a time when silver went to $15. We had just announced our mining permit, and also we had just doubled our resource. What is notable is that we do have 1.25 million warrants that are exercisable at $24 and will expire October the 25th, 2007. And your year low? Our year low would have been roughly $11 per share. And you're currently at? Currently, we're at close to $16 per share. So you're closing down on the highs. How many shares outstanding? We have 48 million shares outstanding, Dominique. And what's your market cap? Our market capitalization is roughly US $600 million. And what percentage do management own? Management owns 20%. And who are the other major shareholders? We have U.S. Global with Frank Holmes. We also have OSS Capital. We have Fidelity, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Oppenheimer, Canadian Pension Plan, Great West Life, Sprott Asset Management, and in total, more than 60 funds that own shares of Silvercorp. Now tell us, your mines are all in China. What are the benefits of operating in China and what are the problems and the dangers? The benefit of our project is that we have exceptional super high grade and exceptional low production costs. 
and consequently, the margin that we see at the mine site is in excess of 77%. What are our challenges? Our challenges is that we don't have enough hours in the day, and therefore, <laughs> this is part of the ramping up. And it's true, we're operating in somebody else's country, and that really, they are an emerging world. And as an emerging nation, they want to change, they want to have the same standard as North America, and they're not there at this moment. And we, Silvercorp, we're part of that change, and over time, we will evolve with our community and bring them to a higher level of standard. And this is definitely one of our primary focus in growing our business. Right now, we only have Ying, a single mine operator, and we're still not up to full production. Now, we like to see we'll be up to full production in a two-year period. During the meanwhile, we're going to be looking at two other mines. We've announced at the beginning of this month that we have secured three mining permits. As such, Yang is our first mining permit. HPG will likely become our second operating mine coming into our revenue stream in year three. In year five, it's likely that we'll have HZ, our third mining permit, to come into our revenue stream. So we're looking at a very young mining company that is growing exponentially in production and not just focused at one operation, but a multitude of operations to come. What about the power and water and infrastructure at Ying? Ying is in the province of Henan. It is in central China. The project is about 500 kilometers south of Beijing. It is a very unusual province in that it's got more than 19 million people living in Ying at the Henan province. This is, in China, the number one most densely populated province in all of China. And the reason why is because they have a thing that's called jobs. Two top employers <laughs> in the province of Henan are mining and agriculture. Consequently, in our mine site, we purchased the majority of our equipment 120 kilometers away from the city of Luoyang. For Silvercorp, We've been extremely fortunate. In 2001, a hydroelectric dam was constructed 19 miles away from our mine site. So consequently, we're, we've got a power line that comes right on to Ying. There is a concrete paved road that comes within four miles of Ying. Beyond that, we are in the smelter capital of China. Consequently, we have five smelters in our district and 3,000 tons per day of milling capacity within 20 miles of where we are. Because it is a mining province, we have generations of miners. Now, here is one very unique feature that I've never saw in any one of my other mining projects that I've worked on. At Ying, even during the exploration stage, we had cell phone, and internet access right at the site. It is a very unusual feature indeed. So you can go on the bulletin boards and start posting. Well, when I go to Ying, I communicate with my BlackBerry and I talk on my cell 
and I work on the internet. It's very convenient. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Kathy Fong. I was lucky enough to meet her at the Minds and Money conference last week. She is an extremely ambitious lady. She's an extremely formidable lady. The company is in good, strong hands. Kathy Fong, thank you very much for appearing on the show. Dominic, it's been our pleasure. Silvercorp aspired to pay a dividend in 2007, so for us, it's about delivery. And each and every delivery that we offer our shareholder, we get rewarded with an increase in our price share, and we've been very fortunate in that respect. Thank you very much for your time. Commodity Watch Radio. So with me now on the show is Michael Hampton, a private investor and also the founder of Green Energy Investors, a bulletin board for active traders in the alternative energy and commodity sector. He posts there as Dr. Bub. Dr. Bub, how are you doing? Very well, Dominic. Nice to speak to you. Thanks very much for coming on the show. There's been a lot of talk recently about this commodities run being a bubble. Um, you're based in Hong Kong. You've been on a couple of visits to China in the last two or three months. Is this a bubble? Well, it's not a bubble when you see China because out there, um, what <laughs> progress we've seen in building and uh, uh, new development um, in the UK is happening very, very fast. You see what would be 10 years of development in one or two years out there. And when you see buildings going up and you see infrastructure being built, it's pretty apparent that the demand that's uh, hitting the commodity markets is genuine. And it's not something that's uh, just imagined by market forces. It's real. And it's set to carry on for a while. Well, China has uh, momentum of its own. I mean, it's, uh, it's got money. China has reserves of two, what is it, $1 trillion, the largest or perhaps second largest foreign currency reserves in the world. And uh, they have plans. They typically operate on a five-year plan. They have plans to keep on growing and investing that money. So traditionally, people looked at demand in the U.S. for signs of when a recession was coming. Um, the demand in China is powerful enough to outweigh um, the demand drop, which we're likely to see in the U.S. So I, I see growth continuing, maybe at a slower rate than the 10% we've been seeing for the last two years. But I certainly see demand continuing and uh, the economy continuing to grow in China and therefore um, reasonably buoyant demand for commodities. But there are other drivers to, the, to this commodities bull as well as China. Oh, yes. Well, uh, China is uh, one of the BRIC countries, which uh, I'm sure you know means Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Um, all four of these countries are growing at a fast rate. And uh, basically the folks out there who uh, enjoyed, a, well, didn't enjoy the Western standard of living would now like to have something like a Western standard of living. They have better jobs and higher incomes, and uh, their money is getting spent on building infrastructure and purchasing homes and cars and so forth that uh, keep the demand for commodities on the boil. I mean, having said that, I wouldn't rule out uh, something like copper, which is uh, really soared in price from under a dollar a few years ago to as much as four dollars and near three dollars recently um, i wouldn't i would i certainly wouldn't be surprised if we saw some type of pullback perhaps a serious pullback 
in copper prices and perhaps some of the other metals correcting these big booms. But commodities in general are going to be, I think, reasonably well bid. Um, there's a rising demand for oil. And uh, I think, you know, we're going to see, if we see a downturn, it's probably creating a buying opportunity. I'm probably most bullish personally right now towards gold and uh, also energy, which has you know, seen a big correction over the summer. I presume when you say gold, you include silver in that? Yes, well, precious metals, gold and silver. Um, actually, gold is a very special commodity, and perhaps silver too, because they represent money. They're the oldest form of money. And um, you know, in a world where people are losing confidence day by day in the dollar, um, there's quite a reasonable chance that... Uh, Countries that are carrying big reserves, um, China and Japan, each with around a trillion dollars in reserves, will want to shift a portion of those reserves away from dollars towards gold and perhaps towards silver. China right now holds 700 billion or more of dollars. And, uh, you know, it won't take much um, of a shift to push the, the gold price quite a lot higher if they start moving some of that money out of dollars into gold. How do you like to trade this commodities bull? What what strategies do you use? Well, I, you know, I have a bit of an unusual, I have a bit of an unusual approach. I talk about gold. I watch the gold market. I use the price of commodities as a trigger in uh, in my investing. I, I pay particular attention to the cycles, uh, seasonal cycles, and longer cycles in the commodity markets, um, but I don't actually invest in commodities. At least I don't invest directly in commodities. Um, what I prefer to do is, is buy the stocks that benefit from the commodity price movements. And here I'm talking about companies that mine, mine gold, silver, and other commodities. When I like oil, I like to buy um, oil producers and gas producers as well, coal producers, which tend to move with the price of oil to some degree. Um, so I t like to buy the companies that, that mine or uh, explore for the uh, underlying commodity. And I suppose the main reason for that is that you get more leverage. You, uh, if you see a 1% move in the gold price, you can see a much bigger move, perhaps 2, 3, 4, even 5% uh, in, in, in the mining stocks. Um, you get much more leverage. So you get more bang for your buck. You invest less money, and you get uh, a bigger return on what you do invest if you're, if you're moving in the right direction. And what's interesting is that the commodity uh, stocks tend to move in the same direction as the underlying commodity. So if you, if you get these turns and movements right in, in the commodity, uh, your, your best and easiest profits are actually made in stocks. Do you spread better tools? Um, I have done. I, I don't actually find spread betting very easy. Um, I, you know, I do do it, and I have made some money trading uh, spread bets. But uh, your risk-reward is, is very difficult, and the attention that's required to maximize the returns on spread bet trades is very intense. I mean, I, I take this game pretty seriously, but I don't think I really have... The, the, the great ability to watch the market at all times and capture every move. And some of the spread betting firms, from time to time, you have problems with execution. Um, things can go wrong. So I, I think spread betting is a good way to sort of get on top of the markets. But 
I wouldn't put a substantial amount of my capital into spread bets. And what do you look for in a miner? You, you, you particularly like the junior miners, I know. Well, I, you know, it's, it's, um, let's start with the admission that uh, the junior companies, um, well, let's divide the junior companies, actually, first. Let's divide the junior companies into miners. Um, and I'm talking here about people who actually have the ability and are producing uh, metal from their mines. That's one type of company, and that's a quite a serious business, you know, requiring a lot of a lot of people uh, who understand and, and and can operate a mine. Um, you're talking hundreds of people uh, for most mining companies. That's one type of company in which I invest. Another type is is an exp exploration company, and that's a company that's looking for a deposit that can be turned into a mine. Now I invest in all uh, levels of that. I invest in the very early stage explorers who you know, have an idea about where to look for, for, for gold and silver or another metal and perhaps in moving through to those who, who think they've found a deposit and are drilling it up, to those that are developing towards a mine and finally on to the final stage where they actually put the mine into production. And I think each stage has special uh, qualities and that you look for in a company. But I found it you know, interesting and profitable to be involved at all stages. And uh, in fact, perhaps the quickest way to generate a profit is by investing in a company that makes a, a big discovery. You can see a huge return. However, having said that, the risks are enormous. I mean, when you buy a exploration company, you're buying a sort of a lottery ticket. And um, anytime you're involved in a, in a game that risky, you really have to be careful about putting all your eggs in one basket because these companies can go up a lot, but they can also lose a lot of value very quickly if uh, if um, the drill holes are disappointing. So you really need to look and diversify your capital amongst different stages of of the game and amongst different companies. Do you have countries that you don't like to put your money into? Yeah, I suppose I do. I mean, I think country risk is important and... Uh, you know, I do, I do tend to prefer um, to invest in companies that are active in areas, for example, like Nevada or Australia, where the country risk is, is, is very low. Um, but I will invest in, you know, countries outside the West and in, uh, in emerging markets. Um, there are risks and, and surprises from time to time, so I try not to put you know, too much capital into uh, a country where there are uh, questions. Um, but it is a part of my portfolio, certainly, to invest in uh, particularly the early stage companies that are active in, in, in some other areas. But I think it's more important, actually, to look at management than country risk. Because, you know, the management is probably the main thing you're investing in, particularly in your, when you're in early stage. Because a good management, well, I mean, they can actually deal with some country risk, but they're also capable of, of bringing new projects into a company and uh, giving it a different future if, if the country they're operating in runs into problems. So uh, when you're talking about exploration and, you know, the, the risks are big, you, know, you recognize the risks are big, the management's a very important way of mitigating that risk. Michael, it's been very interesting talking to you. Just just one point I'd, I'd like to make here is I think one thing
thing, if people are looking for an opportunity right now, there are a lot of seasonal opportunities that happen during the year. Uh, one I think people should be alerted to is the tax loss selling uh, bargains that are being generated in the U.S. and Canada right now. If I can just mention a further word about that. Of course you can. Every year, um, people who have gains in their portfolios will often try and match those gains with losses. So they will sell stocks um, uh, on which they've lost money to, uh, to realize tax losses. They can then balance against tax gains they've taken previously during the year. So what tends to happen is stocks that are beaten down get further beaten down at the end of the year. And you, you find some really outstanding bargains in uh, December and uh, late November. And this is a good time to be looking for those. And I think the next time we chat, we might talk about some of those and uh, how people can make money looking for those types of bargains. We haven't got time now, Michael, but I'd love to ask you, you're a big technical analyst, and I'd love to ask you about some of the uh, methods you employ there. And I look forward to seeing you at the, uh, at the next Mindsight conference when Jim Rogers is speaking. Yeah, well, I hope to see you there too, Dominic. And uh, certainly a good opportunity for people who've been curious about this sector to come along and have a look and uh, listen to Jim and Jim Rogers and various uh, interesting companies presenting their stories. That's, of course, on December the 14th. I think it's the 12th, actually. Is it? I think it's the 14th. Well, it's a Tuesday, which, uh, which I think is the 12th. But uh, You're quite right. It is the 12th. It is the 12th, and it clashes with my daughter's performance at her nursery. There you go. <laughs> so I've got to choose between my four-year-old daughter and Jim Rogers. Michael, thank you very much. And if anyone's interested in finding out more about this sector, I advise you to get on down to greenenergyinvestors.com, uh, which Michael founded. It's a discussion, a bulletin board looking at alternative energy and and the commodity sector, but there's uh, lots of um, interesting conversations and pieces written there about not just about commodities and investment, but about life, the world, and all sorts of interesting subjects. Michael, thank you very much, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it. Well, we've reached the end of our first ever Commodity Watch Radio. Thank you so much for listening. I have to say, it was a lot more work putting this thing together than I anticipated, but nevertheless, it's been great fun and I've learned a great deal. I'd like to thank all my guests, David Morgan, Keith Normeyer, Kathy Fong and Michael Hampton, and I'd also like to thank Tom Sawford of Mindsight for his invaluable help and support. A reminder that the excellent Mindsight forums take place every month, usually on the first Tuesday, and that next month, on December the 12th, yes, December the 12th, we have Jim Rogers, who will also be interviewing on this show. But if you want to see him live, register here at Mindsight.com. I hope to be doing these programmes on a weekly basis, and next week we'll be concentrating on everyone's favourite subject, gold. And we'll be interviewing the king of the gold bugs himself, James Turk, the man with more gold than Solomon. Well, almost. So make sure you tune in then. One last thing, if you like either the First Majestic or the Silver Corp story and you want to know more, their symbols are First Majestic, FR, trading on the TSX, website firstmajestic.com, and Silver Corp, also trading on the TSX, symbol SVM, and their website is silvercorp.ca. I'm Dominic Frisby. See you next week.